0: Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. In fact, this is the last Medical Grand Rounds of this year, and I wish you all a happy holiday season, and we'll reconvene in the new year. Before we start uh, today's Medical Grand Rounds, you know, as we have been doing for our Culinary Medicine program, we are educating people about healthy eating. Um, Interesting topic with today, John's uh, discussion about hunger in the world. We are trying to help in this country with us understanding healthful eating choices and that we can then convey that to our uh, colleagues, friends, family, patients here. The, there's a quiz that happens each of these mornings. And today's question was, what is the healthy component of chocolate? And I'm happy to say that we have a correct answer from Vicky Biggs. who It is the Flavanol Antioxidants. And so Vicky, come on up here and we have a Voucher for you. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, it, there are also bromides and caffeine and a lot of other things in there but I think it's the antioxidant that would make it the most valuable, very likely, and possibly endorphin stimulation. I mean, there's other good things. All right, let's launch into today's Grand Rounds. To introduce John to us today, uh, we have Lisa Adams. Lisa is an Associate Professor of Medicine in our department in the section of of, uh, ID and International Health. She's also the Associate Dean at Geisel for uh, Global Health. She also, uh, at the... John Sloan Dickey Center at Dartmouth College is in charge of the initiatives for global health. Among so many other things, she addresses issues of disparity in health care, both domestically and internationally. She's running a new office at Geisel that's addressing these issues. Uh, I won't go into all the issues for Lisa because she's going to tell us a little bit about John. So,
1: Lisa, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our annual uh, Medical Grand Rounds focused on global health issues. It's my pleasure to introduce someone to you who has been a colleague, friend, and mentor to me, Dr. John Butterly. Most of you know John as a cardiologist and professor of medicine at both Geisel and at TDI. He completed his undergraduate degree at Cornell University in biology and later went on to pursue a master's degree in biochemistry at the University of California at Berkeley, and later an MD degree from UCSF. He trained in internal medicine and cardiology at the Mass General Hospital and practiced for many years at the Lahey Clinic, where he held a number of roles, including serving as director of the cardiovascular training program, director of the cardiac catheterization lab, and eventually as chair of medicine and medical director of network development. He presently serves as the executive medical director for external affairs for Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. Suffice it to say, John has had 20-plus years in which he has been involved in the development and implementation of high-value healthcare delivery as both an administrative leader and a practicing physician. I have had the honor of working with John on global health issues through a variety of endeavors. For the last nine years, he and I have taught the undergraduate course called Global Health and Society. He has a similarly long track record of teaching a course to both undergraduate and graduate students entitled The Biology and Politics of Starvation, which is the title of his talk today. He and his Dartmouth colleague Dr. Jack Shepard from Environmental Studies also co-authored a book by the same title in 2010. This spring, John's latest book, which I had the pleasure of co-authoring with him, will be published under the title Diseases of Poverty, Epidemiology, Infectious Diseases, and Modern Plagues. John has many talents in his roles as educator, mentor, administrator, and as an outstanding cardiologist that I not only would send my family members to, I already have. But it's John's longstanding concern with the social injustices and inequities that accompany extreme poverty that has driven his personal investment to the issue of malnutrition. He has said that while hunger and chronic undernutrition are certainly not the only manifestations of this appalling social gradient, they are arguably the cruelest. We look forward to hearing his insights into this complex issue in his presentation today on hunger, the biology, and politics of starvation. Thank you. Welcome, John.
2: Uh, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, Let me turn this on. Uh, thank you for that very kind and, and very meaningful introduction. And uh, believe me, my working with you is, is just as meaningful for me. And thank you all for coming today uh, to hear this talk, a little different uh, type of talk for uh, for Medical Grand Rounds. I put, I'm not going to show you a lot of terrible pictures, um, but I find this picture particularly moving. Uh, this is a young girl in Sudan in, uh, during the famine in, in the 1990s she's hard to tell how old she is because she's been she's wasted and stunted uh... from chronic and acute malnutrition um, and uh, she's trying to get to a feeding station this was taken at a feeding station uh... and could not make it uh... the way as you can see And in the background you can see a vulture waiting for his meal uh... this picture won a nobel prize the man who took it kevin carter committed suicide uh, very shortly after receiving the the Pulitzer Prize um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is for all these things that he had to see but couldn't really change. Uh, This young girl did die um, some hours after this picture was taken. Um, People ask me, why hunger? Why have you chosen this uh, as something to talk about? Um, I am particularly i won 't say interested, but I guess I will say appalled by the increasing uh, gap in social injustice in the world and frankly in our country about twenty five years ago, um, I was at a, an exercise uh, um, uh, gym in Lexington, Massachusetts, in the locker room, and there was a television there and we were seeing uh, some terrible images from the uh, from the famine in the Sudan. A man sitting next to me. Uh, Uh, Said, uh, you know, these people are always starving. If they don't want to starve, why do they live there? Those of you who know me can imagine that a lively discussion ensued, uh, at which I, um, possibly not all that nicely, questioned his intelligence, sanity, and parentage. Um, But I, but he taught me something, and what he taught me was I couldn't understand how he could say that and how he could believe it. He truly believed this. Uh, That plus my feeling, as Lisa said, that of all the injustices, a chronic hunger Uh, and malnutrition is possibly the cruelest manifestation of of these social injustices. led me to begin a journey in which I had to educate myself about this and led to my developing the course that I taught at at Dartmouth Um, with Lee uh, Lee Witter, some of you may know him, and with Jack Shepard, who co-authored the book with me. So these are the goals of, of, uh, of this talk. I'm hoping you walk away with an understanding of the basic biological and social consequences of inadequate nutrition. I don't uh, frequently give this talk to physicians and nurses, and I know you know, you know or are uh, uh, somewhat aware of the biology of this. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I will identify you the authorities that support the concepts of access to adequate nutrition as a basic human right and a basic human need. If I were talking to you about cardiology, And I was telling you this: these are the treatments of choice for acute coronary symptoms, uh, uh, syndromes, acute myocardial infarction. You'd expect me to deliver uh, to you uh, the authorities for that. What does the literature say about it? I hope to do that for you here in talking about malnutrition. Um, I'd like you to understand the differences between the two competing theories explaining the cause of famine Mm -hmm. in the modern era and not just the Uh, the mechanisms of these theories, but why the difference is so important in terms of accountability. Uh, And then I'd like to finish by giving you a basic understanding of the biological and behavioral principles underlying man's inhumanity to man. Why do we let this happen? Uh, so this is basically a condensation of a 10-week course that uh, we teach at the undergraduate and graduate level. And these are some of the general and specific issues that we cover, and I'll touch on some of them today. Uh, but one point I want to make clear, clearly here is that in the vast majority of instances, it is extreme poverty and poverty that underline, uh, that underlies chronic undernutrition, malnutrition, and the preventable deaths associated with that. It's complex. There are other issues that come up, uh, changes in climate, natural disasters, but the basic issue is, is the vulnerability of those people who live in extreme poverty and poverty. So here are some statistics, and I'm not going to throw a lot of statistics at you. 1.4 billion people live on less than $1.25 U.S. a day. That's the U.N.'s definition of extreme poverty. That's 20% of the world's population, and some of them live in the United States. Uh, An equal number uh, do not have access to safe drinking water. I'm going to say very little about uh, water in this lecture, Uh, But this is a critical issue. 20% of the world does not have access to potable water. Twice that, 40% of the world's population do not have access to safe sanitation, even a pit latrine. 40% of the world's population, something we take for granted. And every 3.6 seconds, a person dies of of starvation. And as you'll learn today, they're not dying of starvation. They're dying of complications of chronic undernutrition. And usually this is a child under the age of 5 years. So that equates to 8 to 10 million children a year who die of preventable causes. Uh, Bridget Corrigan is uh, given uh, credit, appropriately, for having said that statistics are people with the tears washed away. I'm not going to talk a lot about statistics today, so I want you to think about people. I can't get my mind around 1.3 billion people, 1.4 billion people. That, to a large extent, uh, dehumanizes it for me. I just can't get my mind around it, but I can get my mind around that picture of that little girl. So we have to think about the individuals that this represents. So what's my authority for saying to you that access to adequate nutrition is a basic human right? After World War II and all the horrors that were involved in that, the leaders of the developed nations realized that this could never happen again, should not happen again, could not happen again, and for that reason they established the United Nations, they established the World Health Organization, and uh, they uh, assigned this woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, I know you all recognize her, uh, to put together a committee uh, to formulate uh, something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which she did. And you should all read this this document. It was put forward by the United Nations as a non-binding uh, declaration, so uh, countries could sign off on it, but they didn't necessarily have to do anything about it. And it's an excellent document, um, but the point I want to uh, make to you now is that in Article 25, it states very clearly, everyone has the right to adequate food. So that's the first modern declaration, that access to adequate nutrition is a human right. And there have been many since then, but this is uh, where the concept was first promulgated. If you read that declaration, you'll recognize that there are a number of promises that have gone unfulfilled. We just haven't gotten there. And in fact, to some extent, it's gotten worse. And in 2000, the United Nations uh, realized that and formed the Millennium (coughs) Development Project, which not only talked about the inequities and talked about the uh, unacceptability of them, but also put forward how we would deal with them by (coughs) investing. By investing in, there we go, investing in infrastructure, human capital, which I'm going to say a little bit more about, gender equality, and environmental stability. So not just we've got a problem, but this is how we're going to fix it. And there are eight goals to the Millennium Development Project, and the reason I'm showing you this is because goal number one is to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Uh, Is this because people recognize just how cruel a manifestation this is? I believe uh, uh, that (coughs) Jeffrey Sachs, who who is an economist and the leader of the Millennium Development Project, uh, it's because he has described something called the poverty trap. That people who are in extreme poverty can't get out of extreme poverty. And that a major reason for that is because they are always hungry because every thought every day is, where is my next meal coming from? And when you are preoccupied with that, you can't do anything else but look for your uh, next meal. So what's my authority for saying that? And I guess before I go to that, I do want to point out how important education and gender equality is in this. These are synergistic. You can't fix one without fixing the other. And that's true of all these goals. But what's my authority for saying that if there is such a thing as a poverty trap, that chronic hunger and malnutrition is the lock on that trap? Those of you who took Psychology 101 as undergraduates, many of us did as pre-med or biology majors, have heard of Abraham Maslow. He's considered the father of uh, humanistic psychology. And in 1943, he published his Theory of Human Motivation, and something that is now called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And what he pointed out was that there were five steps in the development of human beings in in order to develop their full potential. Now there's some uh, different theories and argument about the details, but uh, I think everybody would agree that we develop in stages. And for each of these stages, physiologic needs, safety, love, belonging, esteem, and self-actualization, if you do not realize the goals of the bottom rungs of this ladder or the base of this pyramid, you cannot advance to the next level. All of your energy will be put into trying to finish, uh, to, to achieve the goals in this next level. So as Maslow said, for the man who is extremely and dangerously hungry, no other interest exists but food. I think this is true. I think we would all agree that, through, details aside, that this is true. But what I want to point out is what this really means. This is the development of human capital. Remember what the Millennium Development said. We must develop human capital. Every one of us has extremely well-developed human capital. If you took any one of us and plotted us in a foreign country where we did not speak the language, we wouldn't starve to death within six months, we'd probably be self-sufficient. One way or another, we would find the way to, be, uh, to take care of ourselves because we have the tools to do it. If you've got a, an individual or a population that is chronically malnourished and hungry, you take away their development of human capital. They, they can never develop their human capital, so it's more than just being uh, hungry. You take away their human potential. Okay. There's a long history of famine, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but as you probably all know, we evolved as hunter-gatherers. You really couldn't have famine until agriculture developed. At that point, the smaller number of a community grew all of the foods for a much larger community, and if that crop failed, you would have famine. This is the first written historical record of famine. Uh, on a engraved on a rock in the first in the island of uh, Sahel in the first cataract of the Nile, um, called the Steel of Famine, and although it's felt to be inscribed two thousand years ago, it's felt to actually describe events four thousand years ago. And I show it to you for two reasons. One is I think it's fascinating that it states that the Nile flood in my time has not come for seven years. I'll explain to you in the next slide why I think that's very interesting. Uh, and it is a perfect description of the breakdown of society and what happens to individuals and what they actually look like clinically when they're starving. So worthwhile, I don't know if you can read it all now, but worthwhile taking a look at this. Let's go even back even farther to another authority, uh, the Bible, uh, the uh, the book of Genesis, and the story of Joseph. And I don't tell you this because of particular reasons uh, um, particular religious reasons but because there's a very important lesson here as there is is true in many biblical stories. If you recall this story Pharaoh had a dream and the dream was that there were seven healthy sheaves of wheat and seven healthy cattle that came up from the Nile and they were followed by seven withered sheaves of wheat and seven wasted cattle and this scared him he didn't know what it meant and called Joseph, who was known to be able to interpret your dreams. And what Joseph said to Pharaoh was, God has shown you what he is going to do. There will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And what you must do is take 10% of all everything produced in the seven years of plenty and put it in your granaries. And when you have famine, you will have enough food to feed your people. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, make it so. And that's what happened. So Joseph put the grain uh, in the granaries uh, during the the plentiful years. And this was followed by seven years of the Nile uh, failing to flood. And when that happened, there was famine. Now, the people had no food. And all they had were their farming implements, their livestock, and their land. What happens in modern fam- famine is that as people begin to starve, they sell off their farming implements. They, they sell off their livestock. They eat their, uh, their uh, seeds, uh, their crop seeds, because they can't save them, and they end up losing entitlement. They eventually sell their land, and they lose their entitlement to the food grown on the land that was previously theirs, and that's what happened in this biblical story. Pharaoh owned all the land. When, uh, when, they want, when uh, the people wanted that grain, it was sold to them in exchange for that land, and they lost their entitlement. This is a very important point that we're going to get to at the end of this talk when we talk about competing um, theories of famine. Um, modern sources of evidence in famine, are, uh, there are actually are not a lot of them. Um, most of the studies of physical and physiologic effects of starvation come from observational studies, Uh, uh, of needs at a distance during World War II. This is a list of some of those famines. There are two prospective controlled studies. One is the Carnegie experiment published in 1919, the study of 10 healthy young volunteers who weren't really starved. Uh, The goal was about a 10% weight loss and it was basically done to see what was the safety of a ration diet during World War I. So it was really about rationing, not about starvation. During World War II, Ansel Keys and his group did a much more uh, important study, uh, this time with 26 volunteers who were conscientious objectors. And these people went through a process of semi-starvation Uh, 1,500 calories a day and uh, elegant studies were done in their physiology, physical and psychological uh, effects of this and then they were refed because it was known that there was uh, uh, widespread starvation and famine in Europe and that this was going to be a humanitarian problem that had to be addressed. Uh, uh, His book, uh, The Biology of Starvation is the seminal text that's out of print uh, but there is a. Uh, the Dartmouth Library does have a copy of it. Um, th- those volumes are replete uh, with data and information for those of you who are interested, but the two points I want to make to you are the first uh, being that the process of starvation is rarely abrupt. The food supply does not abruptly go away, and so there's almost always a prolonged period of caloric deficit uh, resulting in semi-starvation. Uh, And the clinical scenario that one uh, sees has to do with the extent of the nutritional deficit. So, everybody can lose 5 to 10% of their weight with no loss of function. Some of us could stand to lose a lot more than that. Uh, Severe famines are attended by weight loss of 15 to 35%, and weight losses of 35 to 40% are invariably fatal despite attempts to refeed. When we taught the course, we used examples uh, in the global context. So we talked a lot about the Great Famine in Ireland. We talked a lot about uh, famines in India and Southeast Asia. But we've got a serious hunger problem in the United States. And perhaps if you've been watching the news on TV, you see advertisements asking you to give money uh, for... Uh, for this problem in the richest country in the world. So in 1995, 4.2 million households reported inadequate uh, food supplies. And by the way, I'm going to show you uh, a couple of pictures here of children who are hungry, and I'm purposely showing you pictures of children who are white. There's a reason for that, and I'm going to talk about it at the end. Um, If you look on the Internet for pictures of starving children, you'll see that most of them are of color. Um, and I'm going to uh, uh, hypothesize to you that because of human tendency to develop a us-versus-them dichotomy, it's easier for us to accept that than it is to, to look at people who we would perceive as us who are, uh, who are undernourished, and that's my reasoning for showing this to you. Now, this has been going in the wrong direction. So in 2008... 17 million households, or 14.6% of our population, suffered from chronic food insecurity, and that number has held. So in any region, in any state, if you Google it, you'll see about 14% of our population is chronically food insecure and hungry, and that is as true for Hanover and White River Junction in our region as it is for um, uh, Appalachia. A few more statistics, I'm not going to go over them with you, Uh, but, and uh, again, the the picture of the children who are hungry. Uh, This is a season of giving. If you're interested in giving to a good cause, every state has a food bank, uh, either New Hampshire or Vermont, or possibly uh, the state that you hail from, uh, they would all welcome a small donation if you feel like doing that. The other group of people who starving uh, not just the children, but the elderly. Uh, so it might alarm you to know that uh, 35 to 55 percent of hospitalized elderly patients are malnourished. And if you don't believe me, next time you admit somebody in their late 70s, 80s, 90s, take a look at the serum albumin. I think you'll be surprised to see that many of them have biochem- biochemical evidence of, of chronic malnutrition. 40% of, uh, of people in nursing homes and 25% of seniors in our communities are, uh, have evidence of malnutrition, by which I mean chronic undernutrition. Uh, there have been many people who have said that you judge a society by how it treats its children and its senior population, so we should think that through because we consider ourselves a highly developed nation. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about malnutrition in America without mentioning obesity and the, and the metabolic consequences of that. As Lisa said, uh, we have a book coming out uh, hopefully this spring on, uh, based on our global health and society uh, course called Diseases of Poverty. And we now uh, also have a contract for a second volume of this book that we will be writing in collaboration with Rich Rothstein and Rich Comey uh, that will be uh, called Diseases of Affluence. And I will be talking specifically about these problems and the associated diseases. And as I'm sure you all know, that obesity is the most common and costly nu- nutritional problem in the United States, but you might not know that it's actually a global problem. So not just in developed nations, but also developing nations. As we see a uh, a decrease in the proportion of a population with a BMI less than 18.5, which is considered Uh, uh, chronically malnourished, we see a symmetrical increase in the population with a BMI greater than 25, which is considered overweight, and although this first occurs um, uh, uh, in the wealthy, it invariably uh, much more affects people in the lower socioeconomic classes because it's more expensive to eat healthily and to access that food. Obviously, I'm not going to go over this in detail, but uh, the point I want to make here is that the control of our hunger and our satiety is extremely complex. For those of you who feel overweight, you know how hard it is to lose weight. For those of you who think you might be a little underweight and try to bulk up, you probably recognize how hard it is to gain weight. This is why. This is under multiple control systems, and this underlines the importance of the homeostasis of our nutrition to our not just our personal survival, but our reproductive ability and survival of the species. In the course, I go over uh, anatomy and physiology uh, of nutrition. Um, because these are not medical individuals. You're aware of them, uh, but I, uh, the point I make here is that form follows function. Our bodies are uh, exquisitely developed to extract all the energy we can out of our nutrition. Some of you may have had to take physical chemistry, and you might remember Carnot's heat cycle, which is the theoretical most efficient heat engine. And our bodies are basically heat engines. We take energy and convert that basically um, chemical heat energy into work. Uh, Theoretically, uh, uh, the most um, efficient of these engines can't produce more than 60 to 80 percent efficiency. Uh, Engines that we have built, that man has built, uh, generally cannot exceed more than 40 percent efficiency. It's estimated that our bodies are capable of 85% efficiency, more than any mechanical uh, engine built. So that's pretty impressive, and it's because of the anatomy and the physiology involved. I can't go through that, but I do want to talk a bit about nutrition, and this will be a review for most of you. You know the macronutrients are carbohydrates, fats, and protein. There are micronutrients. These are some of the vitamins and some of the minerals. I'm not going to talk about them at all other than to say that a deficiency of any one of these can uh, kill us just as rapidly uh, in somewhat interesting but pretty unpleasant ways uh, as can a deficiency of macronutrients. So the chemistry of nutrition in one slide. Uh, so, So you know we build our own macro, our own uh, macromolecules, and we do that by a process called condensation, two carbon chains, and given a specific enzyme, in addition of energy, uh, we split off this hydrogen and hydroxyl moiety and get a, a, a molecule of water. The opposite of that, given a different enzyme, is called hydrolysis. We take that bond, we add water to it, and we get the energy out of that bond. Uh, And this is the same uh, for carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. The process is exactly the same. The enzymes are different, but the reactions are the same. And the reactions are the same whether you're a human being or a bacterium. An important point I want to make here, and this is pretty much all I'm going to say about it, is that water is a reagent in every one of those uh, reactions and all of those reactions occur in aqueous environments. So without access to a safe source of water, life's not possible. So a bit more, let's drill down a little more on this nutrition. There are, uh, the macronutrients uh, are carbohydrates. Um, the basic uh, um, equation for that is a carbon with a water molecule, hence hydrated carbon. This is our basic source of energy, or ATP, and we gain about four kilocalories of energy from every gram. And we can store energy as a carbohydrate in the form of glycogen, which is an animal starch, mostly in our liver to some extent in our muscles. But there's a problem with that, and that is that you cannot store anhydrous glycogen. You must store it with a water of hydration. Fats, on the other hand, are hydrophobic. They are very highly dense in calories, more than twice that of carbohydrates and proteins, nine kilocalories per gram. And most of our excess nutrient is stored in this form because it's hydrophobic and it can be stored without water. For those of you who are even uh, average weight, Um, if we were to take all of the energy you have stored in adipose tissue and convert that to glycogen and store it as glycogen, uh, because of the water of hydration, you'd weigh 350 pounds more than you do now. So obviously this is an exquisite biochemical adaptation uh, to being able to store your excess nutrients in a way that you can actually deal with, and of course it's the highest energy content as well. Protein is a very special case. The uh, protein is also four kilocalories per gram, uh, but we don't use it very much for energy. It's preferentially recycled to build our internal proteins. The reason for that is that out of the 20 naturally occurring amino acids, 10 of them, we can't synthesize so we call those the essential amino acids we must have them in our diet and if we don't we can't make our own structural proteins so protein is critically important for this and we hear a lot about DNA uh, the nucleic acids what wonderful uh, molecules they are and they are they're self-replicating, they're self-repairing they're incredibly uh, exquisite in the in the detail and in their structure and function, but I can and, and every piece of information that makes you you uh, is stored in these molecules in every cell in your body. But I kind of see this as a wonderful book that if it's left on a shelf and it's not read, doesn't really do very much. It's when somebody reads it and translates that into knowledge and action. Uh, uh, that it really becomes useful, and that's true uh, in this case as well. When you translate your DNA into protein, that turns potential life into life. That's how we move, that's how we communicate internally, and it's how we translate genetic information into our form and our function. So when we talk about malnutrition, we don't, we don't just talk about calories. We talk about protein energy malnutrition because protein is so critically important. And we can classify this as primary energy deficiency, in which case, if it's just a caloric deficit, the clinical entity is marasmus, a word that comes from the Greek word that means withering. And if it's a primary protein deficiency, it's a disease, disease called kwashiorkor. Now, in the 1920s, a group of pediatricians were in Ghana, and they noticed that there was a very large group of children who seemed healthy. They looked overweight, in fact, chubby. And they were known to have diets that were very high in calories. Uh, but they also got sick easily, and they had a, an alarming rate of mortality. And this wasn't understood. Was it a parasite doing this? Was it a vitamin deficiency? Cicely Williams, who was one of the pediatricians, noticed that the people of the Ga tribe uh, used a term to describe this illness called Kwashiorkor, And the general translation of this was the disease the first child gets when the second child is born so what happens to the first child when the second child is born they are weaned from breast milk which is the only source of protein and they're given a diet that's extremely high in carbohydrate calories but essentially absent in protein, and these children developed pure kwashiorkor, which is a very pernicious form of malnutrition, which I'll explain shortly. We can also classify protein energy malnutrition as primary due to inadequate intake or secondary, which is something we see when it's secondary to a disease that causes increased need or decreased intake. So uh, unlike in developed nations, protein allergy malnutrition is the most important nutritional disease in developing nations, highly prevalent. It's related to extremely high child mortality. Of the 8 to 10 million preventable childhood deaths under the age of 5 every year, two-thirds of those are felt to be due to undernutrition, two-thirds of them. Uh, It's also related to serious child uh, morbidity, uh, impaired physical growth and impaired psychological and mental growth, and these children do not recover from that. Once they have been malnourished long enough, uh, their ability to develop full potential is gone. As I stated earlier, uh, this develops slowly, and this allows metabolic and behavioral adjustments. So as you see decreased energy intake Uh, people uh, decrease their uh, energy expenditure. Children stop playing, adults stop working, but when that can no longer compensate, uh, that's when body fat and uh, and sometimes body protein are mobilized and weight loss has begun. So this is the difference between Marasmus and Kwashi or core. You see progressive negative energy balance and, and multiple adaptive mechanisms. One of them is that normally we recycle 75% of, our, of the amino acids we take in for our own protein synthesis, as I said, because of the need for essential amino acids. 25% is broken down for medical purposes, generally gluconeogenesis during the fasting state. With a continued energy deficit, uh, we can then adapt and we can recycle 95% of our proteins. Uh, uh, our proteins that we take in uh, and although we may cannibalize skeletal muscle for other essential proteins we spare our visceral protein so in Marasmus, as weight loss becomes uh, increasingly more a higher percentage of our body weight is due to visceral weight which is functioning so if you measure basal oxygen consumption it actually goes up Because the viscera, whether we're at rest or not, the viscera are functioning and using that oxygen, and that is extremely adaptive. Because if your organs don't work, you're in big trouble. People with your cork can't do that. They cannot make that adaptation, so they um, cannibalize not just skeletal muscle, but also their visceral protein. And when that happens, uh, their viscera stop working. And as I say to uh, non-medical people, you don't need a medical degree to understand why that's a very bad thing. So these are the only pictures I'm going to show you of, of uh, children who are starving. Uh, this is a classic uh, a picture of, of marasmus, that withered appearance. This is the classic uh, picture of kwashiorkor. This child looks puffy, almost chubby. You can see that the skeletal muscle is gone, and in fact, fat does not uh, develop in the hands and lower arms and in the feet like this. That's all edema due to the decrease in oncotic pressure because the serum albumin is extremely low. Uh, some people, uh, there's a common misconception that the, the protuberant belly is ascites, it's not. What it is, is dilated loops of bowel because they've lost their smooth muscle tone in their intestines. And of course, of course, their intestines won't work. So if you try to refeed this child, it's going to be extremely difficult to do that. A few more things that I want to point out. Uh, one of them is that it's children, women, and the elderly who suffer the most. The second is these pictures uh, are of people of color, uh, as I said before. Uh, uh, If you think there isn't an element of racism involved in that, we can talk later about it. Uh, This is another lecture I give in the course. Uh, And they're very, very unhappy. This look on this child's face of fear and pain and worry, classic look for somebody suffering from erasmus. So I'm going to talk in a bit about why some people uh, starve, but I want to talk to you about uh, why they die. Uh, And they don't die of starvation. William Osler said humanity has uh, but three great enemies, fever, famine, and war. Of these, the most terrible is fever. By this, uh, he said that because he knew that in war and in famine, more people died of infectious disease than died of wounds or died of the actual effects of starvation. These are the chronic plagues, dysentery, cholera, typhoid, and typhus. These are the modern plagues, HIV, AIDS, malaria, MDR, TB. We hear a lot about them. They're very, very important. Uh, Those are the loud emergencies. I want to say a little bit about the silent emergencies. There's an excellent series of articles uh, in the Lancet published in 2002, 2003. If you email me, I'll send PDFs of them to you. Uh, A lot of information. It was a five-part article. But what they showed was that pneumonia and diarrhea remain the diagnoses most often associated with childhood death. Some of these children might have MDRTB, might have HIV, AIDS, might have malaria, but they also get pneumonia and diarrhea and that's what they die of. And we're talking about two-thirds of those deaths. So clearly the major causes of death are not these loud emergencies, but the silent emergencies. Uh, Two-thirds of these deaths could be prevented with adequate nutrition. Uh, and uh, vitamin A is a major issue here. I can't talk any anymore about it uh, because time won't allow. Each of these red dots, by the way, is 1,000 preventable deaths in one year, 8 to 10, 8 to 10 million. This is something you're never going to see. That's why the, these are silent emergencies. You see celebrities going out and fighting AIDS, fighting TB, fighting malaria. Diarrhea doesn't carry the same... PR relations or whatever it is. And it's an infrastructure problem safe water and sanitation. Uh, so it's hard to keep it front of mind, but critical to do so because that's why I mean most of these people are dying. So, we've talked about the structure of famine, um, uh, uh, predisposing causes, catalytic causes, why people die. What about the, uh, the theories of, tha- of famine? You've all heard of Thomas Malthus and Malthusian theory of famine that focused on availability of food. Populations grow geometrically, while food supplies grow arithmetically, inevitably, people are going to starve. Mark Sen, as, as a modern economist who won the, uh, the Nobel Prize in 1984 for his theories, he focused on access or entitlement to food. Remember the story of Joseph. That is poverty and inability to access food supplies that is the underlying cause, not the fact that there isn't enough food, but they can't afford it. Okay, now what did I do? There we go. So on the food availability decline, Malthus said the power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other, uh, other form visit the human race. It's an act of God. But Sen says starvation is the characteristic of some people not having enough food to eat. It is not the characteristic of there not being enough food to eat. It's an act of man. So it's an act of God. It's a natural population check. It, it isolates famine from social, economic, and political factors, and it's caused by natural disasters. But if it's an act of man, it's the result of human activity or inactivity, and it's human actions for which we are responsible and we can prevent. So there's an accountability. So it's not just the, the facts of these theories, but the fact of accountability. If sin is right then we've got some accountability here. So uh, who's right? And there are aspects of both that do fit in if you look at separate famines. Uh, But Malthus said that if you look at the Great Famine, increasing Irish poverty collided with food shortages from a natural cause to create starvation. The potato blight. The Irish had their potato fields, and that's what they ate, and when the potato blight came along and destroyed the potatoes, they starved. But what Sen pointed out was it wasn't the lack of availability of food, but the poverty of the Irish people, and the fact that although there was a lot of food in Ireland being grown on the land, it belonged to to the landlords, and it was all being exported for profit. So it wasn't that there wasn't enough food, it was that the Irish couldn't afford it. And think through modern famines. There has never been a famine in democracies. And famines are socially stratified. The rich do not starve. And in all modern families, there has always been enough food available. Uh, the poor just can't afford it. So when you think this through, uh, consider the accountability issues. I want to close by, uh, by going very briefly uh, through um, some points about human behavior and, and uh, uh, upper animal behavior. Uh, first described by Conrad Lorenz. Most of you have probably heard of him. He's the father of uh, the study of animal behavior. He also won a Nobel Prize with his partners in the 1930s or 1940s. He wrote an excellent book called On Aggression. And if you want to know more about this, read it. It's, It's actually pretty easy reading and fascinating. And what he pointed out in brief is that higher animals that form bonds, individual, intraspecific bonds, recognize individuals and form tight bonds with them, are also animals that demonstrate intraspecific aggression. They are also aggressive about others of the same species. They're not aggressive to other species. They may eat them, but that's not aggression. But they're actively aggressive towards other members of the same species. And these two traits are codependent and mutually reinforcing. So in order to form those bonds, it requires a level of intraspecific aggression. And the stronger the bond, the stronger the intraspecific aggression. So if you look at animals, and actually a school of fish would be a better example, that do not recognize individuals, that live in a large herd, and there are all kinds of reasons why these animals live like that, having to do with food availability and safety and numbers, uh, they don't form bonds, and they are not aggressive towards one one another. In this case, they might be during breeding season, but otherwise there's no aggression among them, and they don't form bonds. If, on the other hand, you look at animals that do form bonds, and uh, advanced waterfowl are excellent examples, and the example that Lorenz uses, uh, they develop stylized forms of aggression which helps them to form their mating bond, and then they are extremely aggressive towards others of the same species, whether that's because of ter- to protect their territory and their food supply or their young, there's a very clear correlation between how strong the bond is formed and how aggressive they are to others of the same species. And this is true of us as well. And there are innumerable examples of this. So that in us, rather than... Um, stylized behaviors, although some of them are stylized, you see these uh, social and political behavioral norms depending on our culture, what is acceptable and what is considered aggressive. And humans are also known for uh, a tendency towards dichotomous categorization. Good versus bad, friend versus foe, and importantly, us versus them. Remember what I said about those pictures of children? And the tendency towards um, us-versus-them dichotomization. So here's a block party. And uh, these are the, this is kind of the in crowd here. And, and we've all been here, and you'll recognize this behavior in yourself, whether you'll actively admit it or not. And they're talking about a lot of things, uh, the game Saturday, and what's happened to somebody's house, but they're also gossiping uh... joe's not aging well he really doesn't look good I think he's kind of mentally losing it um, can you believe that outfit sally's wearing i mean what could she have been thinking and she, when is he going to start dressing little sammy in blue shirts rather than pink shirts and maybe cut his hair now maybe this can be a little unkind maybe it can be hurtful but it's not violence it's not damaging but what's really happening they would never say that in front of these people they're forming bonds. They are, this is us, and they are them. And we've all seen that in fraternities and sororities, and clubs, uh, in our groups, uh, our group of friends. Now, I'm from New York, and I happen to know that the Yankees are the best baseball team in the world. Okay. But I've lived in Northern New England for a long time, and I know better than to say that. Okay. But that, and that's fun. Right. But it's an us versus them. We're, we, we form our bonds uh, with our fellow Yankee or, or Red Sox or Patriot fans. And we may um, uh, kind of fool around and, and insult our, uh, the other side. But it's all in fun. But it's bond forming and it's typical human behavior. But sometimes it's not fun. And sometimes it turns deadly uh... and i doubt that there's many americans that you could find who would not agree he represents them and we the american people are us and that and interestingly enough uh... that led to a lot of different things like the war in iraq that kind of didn't really have anything to do with this uh... but you know, we were kind of on a roll at that time, and we were certainly going to take care of Osama bin Laden. And when we did, there were these celebrations. okay. And there's nobody in this room or anywhere, I think, in the country who, who is happier that we killed him than I am. I felt very good about that. But these pictures bothered me because it's mass behavior. It's crowd behavior. And for those of us who are older, these are, these are our children who are celebrating, uh, in a way, on the death of an individual, that frightens me a little bit. Lorenz describes something called militant enthusiasm, and he very specifically describes that. Your group is under, at risk or under attack. You identify them. There's a hated common, common enemy, them. There is an inspiring leader who brings us together to protect us from them, And and large groups of people can be led to do horrifying things under those circumstances, and there was nobody who knew that better than this man. So when you think about those behaviors, recognize them in yourselves, because we all have them, uh, and understand, uh, and I won't go through the slide uh, in detail, understand that human behavior is complex and to some degree, it's hardwired. We are hard, hardwired in these ways, but we also are plastic. Our behaviors, our brains are plastic. We're sentient. We can think through this. We can change our behaviors. I believe we can change them if we understand them, which is why I've gone through this process. So I wanted to end with this document that I think is one of the most inspiring documents. And it says the same thing as the Universal Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be uh, self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think if you ask Thomas Jefferson and harking back to the authorities I brought up, that includes clean water, um, basic sanitation, and food. So thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you, John. We have time for a few comments, reactions, self-reflection.
2: Self-pride. Yeah, I
3: think that was a great, a great talk on, um, we think about this as a bird aggression, but the, a real popular book issue, Top and Piketty, who talks about,
1: you know, the market. Behind all this is why, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about, you know, people buying futures with rice, mm-hmm.
2: and that leads to. I yeah.
1: Think,
3: I think people starve because of
2: that, and the markets are... Uh, absolutely. So they're incredibly they're complex issues. Um, we could talk about U.S. subsidies to our farmers. That keeps farmers in developing nations in poverty. So, so whether it's trading futures and commodities or whether it's our, our policies that are in our best interest, because they're our best interests, but as hurting them, well, that's okay. So maybe that's why we allow that to happen, and if we understand it, we can start to talk to our politicians and start uh, developing different policies. Um, People say that money, sex, and uh, power are the major drivers, not if you're hungry. If you're hungry, the major driver is food. Once you have enough food, then those behaviors may turn to those other goals. Um, so what you're saying is absolutely right, um, and there are things about our society that... Oh, by the way, I do have a conflict of interest. I've been called a bleeding-heart liberal. Uh, I've been called that by my son, uh, <laughs> which worries me about my son.
3: But, <laughs> but
2: I'll accept the label. Um, I think we'd all agree there are other directions we can go. And Yeah, Paul. John,
3: thank you very much, and thank you all to the faculty who are kind of bringing this to the floor. You know, they see all politics is local, but it's also global. And as you mentioned, the Farm Bill being one. So the government really has an impact on, a, a huge impact on what happens as far as hunger is concerned and poverty is concerned. So, you know, what what advocacy groups, political advocacy groups do you kind of uh, support and uh, we can then kind of be involved in I know a couple, but I'm just curious as to which ones you feel are important So
2: that's a great question, and you might have a better answer than I do, Paul. So I do um, support um, both philosophically and financially um, uh, NGOs that feed people. That's where my interest is. Um, I definitely support uh, organizations that support fair trade. uh, But I otherwise don't think I have recommendations to you.
3: Yes, there's uh, an advocacy group that doesn't really give direct money to any uh, country or organization, but they, their whole purpose is advocacy for preventing the, the root cause of, of, of hunger, which is poverty, which is called Bread for the World. It's a non religious group, but I mean, it, it is it does advocate specifically for, the, you know, same policy, foreign bill, but also how we relate to, you know, with uh, U.S. aid, and our foreign support. It really has an incredible mm-hmm. impact, the World Bank. All these policies can, with, with the right of the pen, you know, uh, more or less relegate really a lot of people
2: to poverty. Well, the World Bank, uh, I think, has an agenda that's not necessarily aimed towards decreasing poverty or hunger so much as it, it is aimed as uh, the economic benefit of the developed nations, if you really look at what they're doing and look at the results. Uh, You know, as they say, it's a cliche now. You keep doing what you've always done. You'll keep getting the results you always get. And uh, we haven't addressed these issues. Sending people food isn't the answer. You may need to do it in an acute situation, but it's poverty. And it's the economic policies that are keeping people in that poverty. Um, Charles Whelan wrote a book called Naked Economics. And one of the things he points out is that uh, this is not a zero-sum game. So uh, people feel if we allow these other countries to benefit, we'll lose, zero-sum game. In fact, every time that a developing nation has been able to develop its economy, well, net wealth has increased in the world. We need to get away from the zero-sum game concept. David.
3: John, that was a terrific talk. And I wanted to mention two factoids that totally support your thesis. Uh, you were saying, even if you look in the Hanover area with the White River Junction, those were the two towns, there, there is undernutrition. This past year uh, at the Haven, uh, there were more visits and more people to pick up free food than in any year in the 30 years that they've been open. And second, their common link is poverty. Many of those people have jobs. But if you multiply 2,000 hours a year times $7 an hour for the minimum wage for a family of three or four, that's $14,000. No one can have adequate nutrition, even if they're working at McDonald's 40 hours a week, both of which are strong data to strongly support Absolutely. your thesis at the beginning right here in our region.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and that gap is increasing, and it's very that is very frightening. How badly that is increasing between the haves and the have-nots, um, and of course those children who go to school hungry every day—they can't pay attention. They're—they're they're not going to receive their educations, and they're going to be in a poverty trap. So, thank you, David. I, that's absolutely right.
0: So, as we close out this session, we're coming into the holiday season—a season of reflection and thankfulness about our lives and. This is so germane for us to be thinking about what impact we may have locally, globally. Do some self-reflection. And John, thank you so much for bringing this to Thank you for having me.